My job is to break open the Word of God to you so that you can be obedient to it and apply it in your life. There are people, there are souls that are supposed to be in heaven because you breathe and you will have to give an account one day before the white throne of judgment. When God says, hey, where's the thousand or the two thousand or the five thousand that I planned for you to lead to me? Where are they? Are we going to up our game? Not for me, not for this church, for Jesus. Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast, where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. How many of you have ever written a letter to someone? Handwritten, handwritten letter. How many of you know what that is? <laughs> it's like asking, "Hete a tape? Hete a CD?" My the the guy who produced our album, the Love Key Music album. He's an expat South African living in the in the U.S. And when his boy was a bit smaller, a couple of years ago, they were going through one of these big American department stores. And even then, this was already, you know, CDs and stuff was old. And I mean, I grew up with a Walkman for a tape. And we know Discmans, you know, the Discman, it's smaller, but for the CD. How many had a Discman at some point? Yes. And the young people are going like, what are they talking about? So Daniel is walking through this uh, store and his boy is with him and he sees a disc man on, <laughs> he sees a disc man on the rack and he picks it up and he goes, dad, is this a waffle maker? <laughs> and his dad says, no, it's not worth that much. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. Anyway, some of you might feel the same way about handwriting a letter, you know. Um, and, and if, you, if you used to write it, maybe you had a pen pal even, or 
someone that you really, like romantically, you were trying to woo them, and you were writing these long emotional letters. Anyone like that? Anyone? Yes, thank you. Um, so your average letter that you did write, would you say it was about 500 words? 1,000? Did anyone write more than that? Now, when we look at the ancient letters that they have been able to get from archaeological findings in that first century, it seemed like people didn't really write very long letters. And a part of the reason was it had to be delivered by foot, and they were carrying a lot of, so people had to keep it small. And it probably cost more money the bigger your letter was. And they found a few famous Romans and the letters that they wrote, they had found one that had about a thousand words, which was quite long. And another one that's considered, you know, probably one of the longest ones they could find, which had 2,700 words. But the most or the longest letter of the ancient time is Paul's letter to the Romans at a whopping 7,000 words. And in English, it's more. Because they used to say way less with one word, way more with one word in the ancient times. So in English language, it's about 9,400 words. We're just going to go through 10 of those words today. No, I'm kidding. Scholars who have studied this letter, this book of the Bible, they have many varying opinions about as Simon Sinek says, the why. What is the why of this letter? What's the reason that Paul wrote this, which is considered his greatest work. It's considered a masterpiece. And it's hailed by scholars as the book. If you're going to study the gospel, this is the book. Interestingly, not everyone agrees on all the points. And someone like David Pawson points out that you can't consider this to be the whole gospel of Paul because he doesn't mention certain very important things. For example, doesn't talk about the kingdom specifically. He doesn't talk about the resurrection instead of, apart from just mentioning it here and there. So it's not a full gospel. Some believe he wrote it because he was trying to build relationship with this church to be a base for him to get to Spain. That he still wanted to get to Spain. He had this dream that he wants to plant a church in Spain. And that he was trying to, you know, get these people to partner with him and so he can get from there to there. Others say it's probably a combination. Like he, you know, he'll scratch their back if they scratch his back kind of thing. Um, but it seems like, it's, it's, oh, and others would say it's his gospel manifesto. Like he was just trying to write this whole gospel down so it can be there in perpetuity. But for all of these reasons to make sense, you have to put a parenthesis, hockeys, around chapters 9 to 11. Because the reasons mentioned, if you read 9 to 11, doesn't really fit, doesn't really make sense. Because there he goes into talking about the Jewish people and God's plan for them. Why would he do that? 
But when we dive deeper, we can see that the real reason for the letter is actually quite amazing. In Acts 2, verse 10, we read of the Jews that came to Jerusalem for the Passover when the day of Pentecost happened, or they were there for Passover, they stayed for the day of Pentecost, those Jewish people who came from all over that was in Jerusalem, we, we see in the list in Acts 2, we read about people that came from Rome. They mentioned that there are people, Jewish people from Rome that were at the day of Pentecost. Now it's highly likely that those Roman Jews who were born again during Peter's sermon, you guys know about Peter's sermon? He preached the first sermon and 3,000 were, were born again and baptized. You know about what I'm talking about. All right. So it's possible that that church in Rome started from the believers that got born again in that moment because no one knows who planted the Roman church. It's not known to, in the Bible, it's not mentioned who planted that church. So Paul is writing to a church that he didn't plant and that he, does, he doesn't know the people. Why is he writing to them? Now, over time, this now church that started from Jewish believers in Rome, it grew. The, it says that there, are, there were over 40,000 Jews in Rome at that time, and they were living in the sort of ghetto area, not the greatest area, because people didn't really like the Jews that much. Um, sorry, I, something happened and I lost my, here we go. At one point, there were over 40,000 Jews in the ghettos of Rome. Now, there was an emperor at that time. His name was Emperor Claudius, and he was ruling from 41 to 54 AD. He hated the Jews. He was looking for an excuse to get the Jews out of Rome. And he found it. Upon studying his writings, you find that he said there was one day this massive fight and upheaval among the Jewish people. They were fighting about someone called Christus, which is probably Christos, the Christ. There was a fight among them about the Christ. But he used this as an excuse to expel all of the Jews out of Rome, and they had to leave. But before that happened, Gentiles came to Christ at the Jewish church. So this church was a mixture. It was led by Jews, but they had Gentile believers that became a part of this local church. But now suddenly the Jews are gone, and the Gentiles are left to run the church. And over time, they build the church, and it's growing. Then Claudius dies, a new emperor comes in, and he thought Jews were good for business. So he invited them back. And they all came back. And the, the, the Jewish Christians, or the Messianic Jews, also came back. And they came back to a church that now looked a lot different. A church led by Gentiles. And now suddenly, we have Jew and Gentile trying to coexist in a sin-drenched, idol-filled metropolis of Rome. Paul is writing to this church. He is writing to a divided church. 
They are divided because the Jews think the Gentiles are unrighteous, need to be circumcised, and they have to keep the Sabbath. The Gentiles think the Jews are self-righteous, stuck in old ways, and they believe in what some would call today replacement theology. They believe that the church, the, the new believers, replace the Jewish people. So they like, we're actually better than you. And the Jews are going, no, 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 we have Torah. We are better than you. And we have this tension between these two groups. Gentiles believe that grace gives them license to kind of live how they want. The Jews have legalism and they want to live according to the law of the Torah. But Paul wants to show them a better way, the way of liberty by the Spirit. Not license, not legalism, but liberty in the Spirit. Paul sees an urgent need to step in and give direction. He expresses in this first part of the letter, he really wants to visit them, but he also knows deep down that he might not get the chance to actually visit them. So he wrote this letter to them. And what is his message? I'm going to give you a brief summary of what the letter is about, how it is constructed and put together, and then we're going to dive into the first two chapters today. Everyone with me? All right. What is his message? You're all sinners. Boom. Deal with it. <laughs> you fall short of the righteousness of God, which is the one standard. There's only one standard, and that's God's righteousness. But he also shares with them the good news. Christ paid the ultimate price for all. He fulfilled the law. There's no more need for circumcision. He says, grace is not a license to live how you want. You can, you can, when you read this letter, you almost can see how it goes. Okay, now you Gentiles. Now you Jews. He's kind of directing at the different groups as they are supposed to read this together. And he tells them, legalism kills. He says, the new law of the Spirit of God brings liberty. Like I said, not license, not legalism, but liberty in the Spirit. He teaches them the Gentiles have access to the Abrahamic covenant through Christ. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for the Jews to hear? What? They have access? But he teaches them the Jews are still and always will remain the chosen people of God and that he has an amazing plan for them at the end. And then he teaches them at the end of the letter, don't let food and days and festivals divide. Let the love of God direct you and put your love for God and people before your own convictions about such matters. Now, I looked at different ways that this letter is summarized. I'm going to give you a few. The one way to summarize it is that he, first of all, explains about justification. Because God has one standard, we need to be justified to be in line with that standard. So justification, I'm going to use some difficult terms maybe, but this is, these are ways to explain these principles. So justification, which is imputed, given to believers, 
and it deals with the penalty of sin. So you are all sinners. You all fall short of the glory of God. There's a penalty of sin. But justification brings you out of that. Secondly, he talks about sanctification, which is imparted to us as we walk by the Spirit of God. And this deals with the power of sin. And thirdly, he talks about glorification. You'll know that on Sunday we spoke about the Son of Glory, last Sunday. You remember that? At all? Anyone? Okay. We spoke about glory, what it means to go from suffering to glory. And you can see here as well, there's a process, justification, sanctification, then glorification, which comes when, when the journey is completed. And f- f- it, what that does is it takes forever away the presence of sin. So first the penalty of sin is removed, then the power of sin is removed, and then the presence of sin is removed completely. And Paul is showing this to us in this letter. Another way to divide this letter is to look at chapter 1 to 4, which is he reveals the gospel and God's righteousness. Chapter 5 to 8, he, the gospel creates, sorry, I have to re-explain. Chapter 1 to 4, this is the reason it's called One Gospel, One Church. So the gospel message in chapter 1 to 4 reveals God's righteousness. Chapter 5 to 8, the gospel creates a new humanity and unites Jew and Gentile, one church. Chapters 9 to 11, the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. And chapter 12 to 16, we see the gospel unify the church through practical application. And one last way that we can summarize this letter is the famous three words that you've heard many times, faith, hope, love. Faith, chapter 1 to 4. Hope, chapter 5 to 11. Love, chapter 12 to 16. All right. Now, today, we're going to talk about the righteousness of God. This is the first fundamental concept that Paul tackles in a very direct and powerful way. And in his letter, we see how there is only one standard, the righteousness of God. Amen? So let us read together from Romans 1. Verse 1 to 7. Just by the way, this is in, uh, on the events on version today, if you want to follow along on the version app. Romans 1 from verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is His introduction, guys. He says, I'm appointed by this guy. Through Him, Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, the whole church in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, one group, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see 
that he appeals to both the Jewish and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentile believers. And he establishes Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection right up front to make sure the readers know who he is based, uh, who he is based on what he believes. He's talking about how Jesus is the descendant of David. That will stir something with the Jewish believers. And he speaks about how Jesus came to give holiness to all, which would stir the Gentiles. And then he establishes his ministry and calling as coming straight from Jesus. I'm called by this amazing Son of God. What an introduction. <laughs> it's so powerful. All right. One gospel, one church, one standard. Let's look at the gospel. He briefly states how he plans on and hopes to visit them, and then he gets right into the mission of spreading the gospel, and we get one of the most famous lines Paul ever wrote. Let's read it together, Romans 1 from verse 14. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, you can say Gentiles and Jews, or Gentiles and non-Gentiles, non uh, non both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Everybody say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, now like you believe it. One, two, three. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the then to the, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. One standard. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by their own works. The righteous will live by trying really hard. The righteous will live by getting their life in order before coming to Christ. No. By, everyone says, faith. Please notice how he says he's obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks, Gentiles and Jews. He also says he's obligated to preach to those who are wise and those who are foolish. Imagine you're reading that and going, I wonder where I fall. <laughs> and do not think he's being condescending. He's not trying to be nasty to anyone. He's stating extremes. Greeks and non-Greeks. It's and everything in between. And wise and foolish and everything in between. The gospel is for everyone. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? For everyone who believes by faith. This one gospel, the only true good news is for each person on the planet. I see I wrote plant in my notes. Let's excuse that if you're reading the notes. God's standard of righteousness. We're going to read about that now from verse 18. Now, this is also one of the reasons 
why I don't think Paul was trying to make any friends by being nice. Because he's very straightforward. Listen to this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress what? The truth. How do they suppress the truth? By their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what He has made. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, see, they're without excuse, so they should know that there is a God by looking around them. Not even using faith, using your senses that God gave you. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Not worshiping, not thinking. Very important. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, listen to this, they exchanged by not glorifying and by not thanking God, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul strongly establishes that God is holy and righteous and that there is no tolerance for sin. He clearly states this. One standard. He makes it clear that God has a standard and when His standard is not met or lived up to, His wrath comes into play. Can you see that? Do you agree with that? If you don't agree, read it again and decide whether you believe the Word of God is the Word of God. Paul says God's wrath is being revealed against godless and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The word since that follows now is important. God's wrath is revealed against godless and wicked people because they have had every opportunity to see God all around them, but they choose not to. And as a result, the result of them not recognizing God and following Him, glorifying Him and thanking Him, there's a consequence. This consequence is a consequence of their choice. Because they didn't glorify Him, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the way that they reason, their sense of logic as well, so their thinking became futile. So the way they think, their logic, their reasoning became futile. And their um, emotions as well, their hearts. So both are compromised. Do we see that in the world today? Do we see that in a world where people are saying there's no such thing as objective reality? There's no such thing as scientific research that proves something. No, it's all about how I feel. Do we see that in our world? Now, we see that pride and foolishness go hand in hand. Although they claim to be wise, they actually have become fools. 
Now notice there's an exchange. Something is given up for something else. They exchange the glory of God for man-made images or things. They are, they are exchanging the creator for the created. They are choosing to give glory to that which they are or can create themselves instead of giving glory to the only one who deserves glory. And there are consequences. It gets worse. There's a, there's a line here that keeps repeating in this chapter. God gave them over or God gave them up, some of the translations say. He gave them up to their thinking. He gave them up to their sin. Let's read together from verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts for sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Notice that first they did not recognize, glorify, or thank God. Then there were consequences. Then God gave them over. There were chances, there were moments that they could have taken, they didn't. And God let them be what they choose to be. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is like reading the news in our time. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Notice the word worship. They worship created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, this is a, you must see there's an argument that he's building. And the words like since and because are very important. The next sentence as well. Because of this. Because of what? Because of the way they didn't recognize God, didn't thank God, their thinking became futile, their hearts became futile, and they were given over to their sins. Now because of this, God gave them over, there's that line again, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the penalty, received in themselves the penalty for their error, consequence of sin. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This is hard for Christians to read. Why would God let them? Why would God give them over? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he loving? Yes, he is. And yes, he did. But they persisted and then he gave them over. He goes on in this chapter to list many sins that flow from the consequence of being given over by God. And we see a connection between the sin of exchanging natural relations, the sin of homosexuality, and every other sin you can think of. That's the starting point of every other sin that you see. 
Rebellion in the heart towards God leads to God giving you more and more over to yourself and your sinful desires and behaviors. God is saying, don't do that, live like this. You go, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I wanna do this, I wanna do this. God goes, well, you don't wanna do my will, so let your will be done. That's what he's saying. This means your spiritual arrogance, which caused spiritual blindness, is the catalyst for you to go deeper into the deception. Does that make sense? Spiritual arrogance causes spiritual blindness, and that's the catalyst for you to go deeper into deception. Notice that nowhere here does Paul talk about the devil or the enemy. Doesn't mention the devil once. Did you notice that? Personal choices. Pride against God. Also notice that God can give you over or give you up. That initially, that means, uh, sorry. Notice that if God can give you over or give you up, that initially that means he has you or had you. So if it's possible for God to give you over or give you up, it means that from the beginning, he actually had you. And there's hope in that. He has you. He wants you. He wants you close. But if you persistently and con continuously resist and is prideful and don't want to glorify him first, he will eventually say, I'm going to give you now up to what you apparently want to do. I just want to read this last verse of the chapter because it's quite powerful. Romans 1.32. Although they know God's righteous decree, in other words, he's coming back to his point of saying, they know and have no excuse. There is a God. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, so they even know the consequences of living this way. They, they not only continue to do these very things, but also, listen to this, approve of those who practice them. Yes, come on, sin, do it. You're doing well. Sin better. Sin more. Woo! And aren't we seeing that in our world today? So Paul is sketching a pretty bad picture. He went from an impressive intro to a beautiful intention to come and visit, to a hard-hitting, uncompromising teaching, teaching on how things actually work. He paints a dark, ominous, and very dark picture, and very negative picture. Luckily, we know he didn't write in chapters and verses, so we continue. We get to the subject of self Righteousness. Our one standard is God's righteousness. But one of the things that stands in the way is self-righteousness, my righteousness. As we start chapter 2, Paul is pretty quick to point out to anyone who has been reading chapter 1 thus far, or the first part of his letter, and even to us who are listening to it now, 2,000 years later, he's quick to point out to us that we should not judge those who we just spoke about. You read that whole chapter, you go, yeah, yeah, I know people like that. Yes, yes, bad, bad, very bad, very bad. And then he goes, 
<clears throat> be careful, because you might be on that list. It's a wake-up call. He has been describing the horrible moral decay of the Roman Empire, and specifically the moral state of Rome, the city itself. Did you know that 14 out of the 15 Roman emperors of that time were gay? And the, the, because the leaders are, it's always a top-down thing, that morality crept into the whole of society. And sodomy, especially with boys, was high in frequency. Many historians attribute Rome's eventual fall to a large extent to how they first fell in terms of morals. And that's what's happening to the United States right now. They are having a moral fall before they have a financial fall. It's exactly what's happening. Let me not get into that. Paul is pointing out to this church, similarly to when we studied 1 Corinthians last year, and our first session was on influence. Do you remember that? We spoke about who is influencing whom. Are you influencing the world, or is the world influencing you? So he's saying to them, this is God's standard. This is how far people have fallen short of that standard. But watch out whether you are really still living that standard or if you might not be influenced by this thing around you, because they are in Rome where this is taking place. Who is influencing whom? Is the church influencing the world, or is the world actually influencing those in the church? And we need to ask ourselves the same question. Am I taking what God is showing me and teaching me at church, at Connect, in my quiet time, and taking it out into the world, and my cup is overflowing of joy, love, peace, and the good news of God, so that when I'm interacting with people in the world, they see God on my life, and I can lead people to Christ? Or am I ashamed of the gospel that has the power to salvation? And I'm just a secret agent Christian, let no one find out who is influencing whom and who is afraid of who. There's another analogy about the boat and the sea. Don't let the sea come into the boat. Then the boat can stay on the water and be effective. He warns those eager to judge sinners to make sure that they are not doing the same exact sins because one day all will stand before God and they works will be tested. Now, but wait, Heinz, earlier you were saying that works don't get you into righteousness with God. Yes, your own works before salvation won't. But we are supposed to step into justification by faith, but then we have to walk out our sanctification. And there's supposed to be fruit on our lives which is the works of the kingdom of God. And that is the works that we will be judged by one day. You're not saved and then can chill, have a ticket to heaven and do what you want. You are saved for a purpose and for a kingdom and to serve at the local church, to further that kingdom. That is why you are saved, amen? Very uncomfortable right now. Romans 2 from verse 7. To those who by persistence 
Listen to the word. Persistence. Consistently. In doing good, see glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. Who gets eternal life? Those who, pers- who are persistent in doing good and seeking glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. As with Jesus, I want to ask the question, do you see a middle ground? Do you see a gray area? But how many of us are painfully aware of how the church is operating in the gray area today? I just don't want to offend anyone. I want to walk on some eggshells and make sure I just don't hurt your feelings. I'm going to sin a little bit here, sin a little bit there. Just say, God, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's like But I'm going to heaven. On my way there, I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to live comfortably and convenient. I'm going to go on my holidays and have a great time. Woohoo! Name it, claim it, frame it, broer. <laughs> Glory. Hallelujah. Apostoli uli, let it flow. But nothing changes, and no one around you is changing. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, and the Gentiles go, whoo, but wait, there's a comma. Then for the Gentile, oh man. But glory honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. That's a private joke. My wife is convinced that she's God's favorite. There is evidence there is evidence. So it's, it's hard to, to yeah, I'm joking. I'm also just trying to light the mood because you're all like, whoa, this is hectic. Yes, it is hectic. And it is true. And we need to deal with it. Paul is making it crystal clear that God's standard of righteousness applies to all. Also through my laptop. It applies to all, Jew and Gentile alike. These statements should humble the reader, cause the reader to check his or her own heart motivation, and take a posture of humility before God, and think about the eternal consequence of how I live. One of the biggest problems we have in our world and in our society, and I'm going to be, I'm going to bring it close to home. One of the biggest problems we have in this privileged predominantly white Somerset West area, as if we are not eternally mind, we don't have an eternal mindset to enough of an extent. We are living for now, we're living for survival, we're living to protect ourselves, to get, make money, to have enough, and to just survive with what we think survival is, and we are, you know, ignoring the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And we, we want to, you know, come to church, and it must be great and organized, and everything must work well, but I don't want to be part of it. 
I just want to enjoy it. And, and I, and I want to go and I want to leave and I don't want to do anything about what I've just heard. I just want to tick the box that I went to church. You're not going to change the world that way. You're not going to change your business that way. You're not going to change your marriage that way. You're not going to change your children that way. I want to talk about our current world. As we read these words of Paul that date back to 56 AD, do you notice a resemblance to our current world? The great lie of our time is wokeness, being woke. It has become the religion of this era and of the young people of our time. This is all they talk about on campuses, university campuses, and in high schools. And there are so-called progressive, progressive Christians that also step into this trap, and they entertain it. And they, they, they say that love is to tolerate sin. And it's become a mess. If you truly love someone, Letting them live in sin and die eternal death is not love. Now, I agree, the way that you communicate that should not be in a break-you-down, judgmental way. Absolutely. We have instructions from the Word of God on how to do that. But do you care enough, love enough, are passionate enough, and enough eternally minded that you want to see the people you know that don't know Jesus are not born again, are not filled with the Spirit. Do you want to see them saved? And if you do, what are you doing about it? Am I getting up in your business yet? I know, I know this is hard. But Ephesians 4 instructs that the fivefold ministry, of which I'm a teacher of the fivefold, is for the equipping of the saints, which is you, for the work of ministry. My job is to break open the Word of God to you so that you can be obedient to it and apply it in your life. There are people, there are souls that are supposed to be in heaven because you breathe. And you will have to give an account one day before the white throne of judgment. When God says, Hey, where's the thousand or the two thousand or the five thousand that I planned for you to lead to me? Where are they? You're like, well, you know, that's one time in class I read a scripture. Are we going to up our game? Not for me, not for this church, for Jesus. We see in our world as well how God has given people over to their own warped thinking. Logic and objective reality is a thing of the past. And whatever an individual believes is true is now truth. And it's breaking people more than they can imagine. Christianity is under attack in first world nations. First world nations that pride themselves on freedom of speech and freedom of religion are attacking Christians. Taking Bibles away, locking churches up, locking pastors up. It's happening right now. Children are being groomed for mass sexual exploitation. There was a bill signed in this week in one of the states in America where if you as a parent now refuse 
to have your child go through transitioning process and surgery, if you refuse that, your child will be taken away from you. That used to be the other way around. That if your child is being abused by you, they will take them away. Now, if you want to protect your child so that the government can abuse your child, they take them away. Can you see how logic and reason and objective reality has completely been skewed and is being used by government organizations? And this is coming for us in South Africa. God's design for marriage is being destroyed in our nation right now. They are passing a bill called the One Marriage Act. Sounds nice, right? There used to be a a bill just for heterosexual marriages between one man and one woman. And then an act for each other type, civil union, all that other stuff. Now they want to put it all under one thing and say anyone can marry anyone however they want. It's evil. And it's going to destroy this nation even further. Nine, 10, 11-year-old girls are getting pregnant to get a government grant of 350 rand a month. During COVID, they had a crisis of over 30,000 10, 11-year-old girls getting pregnant in Gauteng for 350 rand a month. Can we see the fatherlessness crisis? We don't have fathers who love Jesus, and therefore we don't have fathers that are leading their sons and daughters to be men and women of God. Not to mention our murder rate, rape rate, human trafficking crisis, and how the government is trying to decriminalize prostitution. Lives are being destroyed, and they're getting a legal waiver to do it with. It is shocking. It is evil. And the church has to do something. We are the only hope for this world. We are the only hope for this area. We are the only hope for the schools in this area. What are we going to do to keep this nonsense out of our public schools? Will you get on a school board? Will you get into a committee that can make a difference? Bring your overflowing cup of God's love and make a difference. Or will you just look as everything goes literally to hell? Paul shows us two responses that do not lead to eternal life. Giving into lusts of the world and living the way you want to live, which is license to live the, the way you want. The other one is judging those who live sinfully when you yourself are not living without sin. In other words, legalism or self-righteousness. And we find this in our church world here as well. We can all fall either into the traps of thinking God's grace is so amazing you won't He won't ever have a problem with me sinning. And the other trap is religious legalism or self-righteousness. When I think my cultural Christianity trumps anyone else, then I'm doing the exact same thing as the Jewish believers. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing in the rest of chapter 2 with the Jews. He's addressing their legalism that they're trying to rely on and trying to probably force onto the Gentile believers. And this whole argument can be loosely summarized in in verse 28 and 29. Listen to this. He says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a, person, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. How many of you want to receive the praise of God? What is your motivation for doing certain things? How much of the, the motions and the things that you go through in life are based on what you learned in whatever traditional church you grew up in? Well, I'm doing this way because my parents used to do it this way because, you know, the, the minister taught us this way. Or have you gone to Christ as a born-again believer and said, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, culturally, preconceived ideas, whatever it might be, I want to I get rid of it. Open my eyes to what you truly are, who you truly are, and how your kingdom truly works. Because we can easily let outward rituals and man-made rules make us proud and feel righteous, but no deed invented by man can make you righteous. Only the one standard, God's standard of righteousness can be the one that sets us free. And you know what? This is the good news. That word imputed means that God's righteousness is given to us. I don't know if you know the story, but Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, he struggled with this idea of God's righteousness. He felt condemned by it. He felt that he could never live up to it until he had a revelation one day that it's not something for me to live up to. It's something for me to receive by faith. And the righteousness of God, when the Bible says the righteousness of God, it speaks of what is available to each and every one of us who believe. It doesn't say become righteous in your own strength and you can kind of hook onto the righteousness of God. No. It says that you have to come humbly, believing, and by faith, accept the gospel, and then God imputes, gives, pours out His righteousness onto you. And then you are made right with Him. And then your journey of sanctification starts. Do you understand? Let us stand before God. Today is probably a day of some much needed conviction for all of us. A day where we have to trust the Holy Spirit to bring holy conviction in our lives. There's one standard of God's righteousness. Paul shows us clearly what righteousness is not. But he also tells us that we have access to God's righteousness. And I want each of us to take a moment today and just come before God humbly. Humbly means that I come with no preconceived idea or attitude that I've arrived, that I've made it, that I'm okay, that I don't need anything. It means I come open, surrendered, ready to receive, ready to be taught by God. Will you do that? Will you close your eyes and come humbly before God today? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this book, this letter. It's hard to read. 
It challenges us, but I thank you for the truth of your word that comes and shows us what is not of you that might be in our lives and what we have access to when we believe and step into relationship with you. So Lord, my prayer right now is that each of us will get a revelation of whatever extent we might be in a world of sin, a pattern of sin, a habit of sin that we're excusing, letting happen with no intention of getting rid of it completely. I pray for that conviction to come upon each who needs that right now. But similarly, Lord, I ask that you'll bring conviction where any of us might be self-righteous, leaning on our own works, our own ideas, what we think is righteousness, which causes us to judge others. Bring your conviction, Holy Spirit. Show it clearly to us right now in Jesus' name. Just take a moment, church. And let the Holy Spirit minister to you right now. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church podcast message of the week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.